I, I saw a meme, right? When Kobe Bryant retired, it was a meme of Kobe Bryant sitting on the couch uh, with his two daughters and his wife. And the meme said, so what do y'all like to do? <laughs> Basically saying like, I don't even know y'all. <laughs> 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 His daughter, like, ten years old. Hey, have you ever read a good book that was thought provoking and wanted to talk about it with your friend? Well, you come to the right place because that's what we do here. Welcome to the Bros Bookshelf with your host Lenny Givens and Walter Adams, a real talk book review podcast. Today is our final review on the $40 million slave. And we're going to wrap up chapters 8 through 10. And today we have a special guest with us. This brother is a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated. Tied new spring 01 Fort Wayne, Indiana. I met this brother in 2008 while he was earning his PhD in curriculum and instructions with a specialty in curriculum studies from Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. He has his master's in education and curriculum and instruction with a specialty in career and technical education, also from Purdue University. He's a graduate from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, where he earned his degree in industrial technical with a specialty in manufacturing system. <laughs> yeah. You there, there he was a member of the 1999 MEAC. HBCU National Championship <laughs> football team that defeated my alma mater, Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University, FAMU, with the score of 30 to 15. He went on to serve as the professor at North Carolina Central University and ran the men's youth mentoring program. It's my pleasure and my great honor to welcome <laughs> my dog, my good brother, Spring 01. Dr. Harvey Hinton <laughs> to the show. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, let's dig into this. To wrap this up from chapter 8 to chapter 10, chapter 8, talk about Michael Jordan, how Michael Jordan was apolitical. He didn't take any political stances, and it kind of felt like he transcended race. And he was like, almost like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Michael Jordan was kind of like the same thing with his agent, Kevin Falk. He said, you know, I don't look at Jordan as a black athlete. I just look at Michael Jordan as a star athlete. And Jordan kind of took that and ran with it. He never took any outside positions outside the court, which in turn made him a marketing icon. So much so that he had so much allegiance to his brand Nike that during the 1992 Olympics, he covered his jersey with the American flag so he so they won't be able to see the Reebok sign because he represented Nike. Well, and that's the thing about it, man. I think, first of all, we have a false expectation for Michael Jordan that exists later in our lives. When we were growing up, Michael Jordan was Superman, and we knew he was black, and we didn't need him to be anything else. And he hung out with Spike Lee. So this idea that he won't with us and all this kind of stuff, I think that's fake. I think that's unfair to take that stance now. I think back then he is who he always has been. You know, and I think we get he's Kawhi. You know, you, you know, you you got you got to understand that not everybody is going to take that forward step when it comes to being an activist. And most people don't anyway. So don't expect him to do nothing different than what most people wouldn't do. That's well, I would I say, uh, I would say Jordan helped pretty much like open open the, the the money when it comes down to like athletes being able to get major paydays as they're getting today. 
and like major shoe endorsement deals because prior to Jordan, uh, athletes wouldn't get no major money in that capacity, you know? Because you got to think, when, when Jordan came out, when Jordan had that Nike deal, right, in the early 80s, uh, the the most of the athletes wouldn't get no more than, let's say, $5 million shoe deals, you know? Now, it came to a surprise and a shock to Jordan after he retired. He took a position in the executive office as a team president for Washington Wizards with the aspirations of learning the business and eventually taking over the franchise. But right. soon after assuming the position as president, he was convinced to come out of retirement and suit up on the court. And so they took him out of the office and say, Hey man, I know you want to uh, learn the business behind the scenes, but <laughs> we're struggling on the court. You know, do you mind coming out of retirement? And, and playing for a little bit. So before Jordan joined the team in 2000, the Wizards reportedly lost 40 million. And with Jordan right. playing, he sold out 82 straight games and profit 30 million. Two years you later, when Jordan retired, Alan Pol uh, Poland, the owner of the team, patted Jordan on the back and told him that we appreciate everything you've done for us, but we're going to move in a different direction. That's right. And that was a shock to Jordan. Because, like, even like what we said, Jordan thought that <laughs> he was Jordan and everybody else and everybody eyes. Except he was. Except no, no, no. I think we miss it. Okay. I think we miss it. I think we miss it. There's an old proverb to say, he who asks the question shall find the answer. And you want to know how business get done, Michael Jordan? Well, that's how I get done, homeboy. <laughs> <laughs> the joke's on you, son. Like, that's what happens in business. Don't think you, no, 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 no. That's what happens. These people are cutthroat. They cutthroat. They do what they're going to do to get what they want at any cost. And that's a lesson. He learned that. I bet you he learned that. That rubbed John Thompson wrong. John Thompson spoke out about that. John Thompson's supposed to feel that way. And that's good that, oh. you know, he showed him that level of support. John Thompson, the former Georgetown coach, said that. This was exploitation at its cruelest form. Thompson That's right. compared Jordan's dismissal to Poland sending Jordan back to the plantation after reefing profits from his labor. They exploited this man, Thompson said. The minute he was used up, they discarded him. There's something wrong with that. Now, that could be, I mean, he compared, he compared it to plantation, but just like you said, right. like you said earlier, it's capitalism. Capital. That's right. This one thing about capitalism that I realize is that it's always a it's a benefit me situation. Each party is using one another. Well, the owners are using Jordan to to make capital gains, and Jordan's is going to a person that has the resources to pay him so he can make capital himself, you know, and then do what he wants to do with his capital. Right. Everybody you, is in it for themselves. Exactly. It's a use you situation. Right. So. Walt. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so yeah. all right. So Jordan didn't take any political positions, right? But uh do you believe that Jordan played his role? Although he didn't speak out, you know, he was oh yeah, yeah, was yeah, silent, yeah, 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 yeah. But what he did was he yeah. showed that black people can be marketable. I mean on a global yeah. stage, right? And with yeah. his silence, he was able to elevate. Like when we being oppressed, it's safe to say that we in oppressed society, right? And by mm -hmm. us being in oppressed society, sometimes we have to try to elevate ourselves and overcompensate ourselves for what we feel like is being stripped away from us. So that out right. of the, out of that out of those ashes, you have people who are pro black and you know pro the movement because we trying to stay afloat. So basically what you're saying is, is different types of people within the struggle then. Oh, yeah, in different roles. Over. Yeah, different roles. Right, right. Okay, and, and sometimes it. we judge people based – we judge people wrongly. We don't look at the whole. Right. And we we and, right. and we try to put, like, uh, our expectations on what we think that they should do. They should be doing. Right. right. Spend their money, be in their pockets. <laughs> right, spend, spend, spend their money and be in their pockets. And then if you step back – so I, think, I think we miss when we look at Jordan. Like, I mean, again, when, when we was little, man, he was, he was the man – so definitely in the shoe culture, you can't deny the shoe culture and the shoe game, what he did. You know, I'm not talking about positive, but in terms of influence, like that's that was there. But um, look, the way the brother walked on a court, 
the Jordan swag. <laughs> the wristbands, the, the, the wristbands. long shorts. Like, listen, bro. The gold like, chain. That's not, the gold chain. That, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on, man. Uh, yeah. And he did it like, you know what no, I'm saying? He did have some swag. That, that, was, have swag, that, man. that was that. <laughs> No, he asked. So, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, what what more could we want, man? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so basically, you've done enough. That's all you need to do. (laughs) No, that's all he needs to do, man. Like, I think Jordan was like that. Well, I think he did a lot also because of the fact that, uh, yeah, he was that, that positive figure, right? Right. He was that figure that, you know, he was an ideal model citizen. He didn't have too many scandals out. Well, they didn't let his PR team didn't let too many major scandals get out. I mean, post his NBA career when he got divorced from his wife and his gambling problems started to, you know, become more of the forefront of who he was as a person. But that was like post career. But as he was playing, you're talking about, you know, from 83 to the 96 in his prime. Shit. Michael Jordan represented. A lot for a lot of individuals in inner cities, man. Right. And, and right. Basketball players, people that was pretty much aspiring to be above their circumstances and situations. Jordan alone probably right. inspired so many kids to go to college, so many kids to stay on the basketball court to get good grades in school. You know what I mean? Right. So I think that's something that he won't get credit for by by not by when we keep digging into this narrative about him speaking out. You know, right? Right. I think that's. That's 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 a false. You got to realize that he didn't have time. He was an expert in one thing in life, and that was basketball. Right. Everything right. else was a by. Mastered it. He mastered basketball. Mastered it. Just was a byproduct. So he wasn't. He wasn't a great husband. He probably wasn't a great father. He probably wasn't a great person when it came now to have that like uh that that talk about credit or that talk about everyday life shit because all that stuff was handled for him. So to even for us to have expectations for some of these athletes to even speak out on some of these social issues, it's kind of right. It's kind of not even fair in a sense, you know. It's not, dog. All right, I disagree, but but it, it, it's not it's not fair in a sense, man, because of the fact that <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's fair. No, I'm, I'm thinking to about whom much is given, much is required. Yeah, dog. But at the same time, though, but like think about it though. If you I, only, I, I thought about it. I thought about it. All right. What's your position? <laughs> but look, look. So, I, I would say some people are, are, are very just self-aware, self-conscious people about their community and where they're from. And they all right. have parents is heavily involved in the struggle. Absolutely. Et cetera, et cetera. But some people just aren't. And it, it ain't it. Exactly. That's the, all right. So that's the part that I can agree with. Okay. But the part, uh, the part where you was trying to say, you know, he's an athlete. He was working on one thing, and he couldn't multitask. I'm like, nah, 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 I, 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 I was saying that. I was saying that. basically, you were saying like he was, a, he wasn't a good father. He wasn't a good husband because he mastered one thing, and that's putting that, the ball in the in the basket. Right, but when have you ever, have you ever heard Jordan's son say he was a good dad or talk? No, might be true. no. What I'm saying is. That is just exclusive to Michael Jordan. And like you said, no, it's not. everybody, everybody, when it comes to the fight, everybody ain't fighting. You know, everybody wasn't marching with King. You know, you saw the movie Queen and Slim. You know, some the, the people who sold out the fight was the people who looked just like us. But nah, he was know, with Spike Lee, dog. He was hanging with Spike Lee. All right. Was <laughs> hey, dog. Hey, come on, man. Spike come Lee on, man. Man, let me give my. All right, look. One last thing. So, look, I saw a meme, right? When Kobe Bryant retired, it was a meme of Kobe Bryant sitting on the couch uh, with his two daughters and his wife. And the meme said, So, what do y'all like to do? <laughs> Basically saying like uh, I don't even know y'all. <laughs> <laughs> His daughter like ten years old. Like, so right. what do y'all like to do? That's true though. That was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, he probably liked that with his wife, you know. For real. <laughs>
because he was never there. But anyway, I mean that could be true. I don't know. But uh, I was I was talking about uh, the balance, like in our personal lives, you know. So um, if you can be if you can be strong for the cause, right? And sometimes being real strong for the cause that kind of cuts into your capital. So let's say oh, it will. You know what I mean? Like you can't go to work wearing a dashiki. No, you can't. With an African symbol with a fist up. It can cut into your, your profit. You know what I'm saying? So check this. Check, I'm going to check this real quick. So like, put it in the context of Michael Jordan in the era we're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Jordan's, you know, 10 years older than us. Two lessons. Two lessons. When I left a in 2000 and went to Indiana, my uncle told me, white people are going to accept you before they accept your race. In other words, they were going to give me privileges that don't reflect the struggle of the people. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, yep. You know what I'm saying? So certain people are going to get exposed to certain things that other people don't. And certain, so, so when the dude says, I didn't see Jordan as a black man, I saw him as a star. That's what that is. You know, putting him on a different platform because him being a star meant that it brought him money. It doesn't benefit him to hang up around black people. You know, it benefits him to hang out with a star <laughs> and manage a star. So that's that's you know, that's that's how that works. And the other side of that, to your point, same era, same people. I was looking at a yearbook from from um my dad's, you know, school, North Carolina Central, and the yearbook was like seventy two or something like that. And everybody had dashikis and and black shades and Africa was all over the damn book. Africa was everywhere. So I asked my pops, I said, man, what happened to this blackness? And he said, we got to go to work. So I think what Jordan represented wow. for a lot of working black men right. at that exactly time. That's exactly what I said. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I think we tripping when we be like, man, he ain't say nothing about black people. Man, that's a false, man. Come on, bro. That ain't how we fight. <laughs> that ain't fighting. <laughs> yeah. And then we also oftentimes forget that the NBA is an actual job as well, too. Absolutely. You know, so for yeah, us. We, we see what happened to people <laughs> when they try to speak out. Yeah. Yeah. And make it something else. Chapter nine kind of talks about Lucia Harris, the first woman that was drafted into the NBA. Yeah. So Lucia Harris, uh, she was a phenomenal women's basketball player. The college she went to was in Mississippi. It was what? Delta State. State. Delta State, right. So what was significant, why this story touched me so much because of the fact she was a black college basketball player at Delta State. My grandmother and my dad, they're from the Delta down in Mississippi. A real, real, real uh, high concentrated racist area, you know. And I was just up there a couple of weeks ago um, uh, visiting my dad's hometown. And Delta State, a couple of my cousins went to Delta State as well, too. So, But I had never heard of this basketball player until this point, Lucia Harris. But she was a dominant basketball player. She was 6'3". Uh, Power Four Pat Summit described her as like a a female uh, Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, Lucia Harris said that when she was in college and she was walking through the halls when she got to to school, it was a predominantly white school at the time, and everybody would say like in the early seventies you would see a six three woman. She was like that was like seeing like a a, a seven feet a male person because women just wasn't that tall at that particular time. Well, nevertheless, she. Uh, played basketball for Delta State, um, took him to like national prominence. Her record was like was like 109 and like uh, three or five over the course of four years. She played on the uh, USA basketball team. And then after she was done playing uh, college basketball, uh, she was drafted into the uh, NBA. But she chose not to go to the NBA because of the fact she felt like it was a, a political a fluke or a publicity stunt because of the fact how could she compete with guys like Lou Alcindor or guys like, you know, Oscar Robinson um, when she was only 6'3 and centers at that time was, you know, 6'9 and 7 feet tall. Right. She was drafted in the seventh round in 137 pick by the New Orleans Jazz. And it came right. uh, later came find out uh, this was in the 1977 draft. She was uh, she was pregnant. That was uh, one of the real reasons why she didn't go. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was later found out. But uh, the the part about her story, and you know, 
not only was she the first woman, official woman drafted into the NBA, uh, what? Golly. <laughs> yeah, she was pregnant. She was pregnant. Uh, she's a she. She was a woman. She's a woman. I ain't finna. Uh, I mean, I get that. But she was pregnant. <laughs> Say, <laughs> she. <laughs> the, um, the, the, uh, the, the thing, the striking moment about this book, I mean, about this story is. Uh, when she was coming out of high school, she was uh, on her way to go to Alcorn State. And that's in South Mississippi, HBCU. The the uh, coach from Delta State approached her and asked her, did she want to play basketball? Because uh, Alcorn State didn't have a women's basketball program, but Delta State did. Now, Delta State is an all-white school. So she was about to be uh, surrounded by you know people of her peers and her culture, but she decided to forego that and go to Delta State to play basketball, and they won like two championships, and they ended up beating LSU in the championship game. So she brought that little tiny school up, and she, again, like she made that school a lot of money and got a lot of notoriety. And coming out of that school was the first woman to ever get drafted by the NBA. Later yeah. on down the line, after she didn't play, she coached for a little bit, and the head coach position opened up at Delta State, and she applied for it, and they didn't even consider her. Listen, man, I laugh because her story illustrates to me another example why a woman's plight, a black woman's plight, is much harder than a man's. Because it's just that that a, a man who... A, that would not have stopped the brother. Oh, I got a baby on the way, so I can't go to the league. I got to go work in the field. Nah, dog, he's right. going to the league and get that money. You know what I mean? And it just, it's just, it's just, and then to again overlook, you know what I'm saying, later on, the, you know, that's the. I got you. That, that's the thing. Yeah, man. That women, so I th- that's the thing I think that when we talk, deal I, with that men don't see, and, and, and a lot of times yes. they don't take we it into consideration. We because see. we can't, a, a man can be like, got three right. kids, and be like, hey, I, hey, baby, I got this job up in North Dakota uh, doing some fracking, and, and, and I, I'm out. You know, they paying, they paying $80 an hour, and we need this money. money. And so I'm the lady out. like, okay, yeah, and, and now she got she got three kids. She, she got to make sure that they get to school. The they get home from school. They make it to all the events. You know, she got to do that, uh, make sure they homework, somebody's sick. You know, all those things that she got to do on her own where a man can just be like, I'm out. A woman can't be like, I'm out. And if she is like, I'm out, they'll burn her at the, uh, at, at the stake. Like, what kind of woman are you leaving your kids? Yeah. But, you know, that's a whole different thing, man. Uh, yeah. That's a whole different thing. But it's not really. It's about exploitation. It's constantly being exploited, right? And so I think when we look at the notion of $40 million slaves, I think for you know your mind, woman ain't making no money in sports no way, so we ain't even thinking about her. That title don't, that's why her, that's why her chapters, you know, they don't even, uh, we talk, we automatically know men making the money, so ain't even no men, million, female millionaires making money like that, so we ain't even think about them. So that's what makes it like double down on us when we doubly miss it. That we're actually talking about it, you know, and our story puts our position above that one. So that one is like minimalizing the picture. You know what I'm saying? That's what that's what we do. That's what men do, dog. <laughs> men, you know, when we learn that shit, I, I think I know where we learn that shit. Oh, quick that, question. That what do you think you learn that shit from, though? Is that a learned Oh, no, um, and the oppressed, the oppressive man. Like it's that system. Like they, they did business. That's 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 how they do business, man. So we learn that through that that experience. You know, being colonized. You know, chattel slavery. All that dealing with the white people shit taught us to have bad relationships with women. It changed the dynamic. You know, I um when I was at Purdue. I had some Native American friends. They was from like, you know, I apologize. I forget where they was from, man. But it was like the middle, the middle of the country and shit. Yeah. Like Oklahoma, them kind of shits. And they, they had different worldviews, man. Like they didn't believe in that, you know, a man originated in Africa shit. They believed that man came from the earth. They believed their spirits came from the damn animals and shit. So they didn't, they didn't buy that whole thing. And I, I disagree with them, but I respect them for having that theory. 
I disagree with them because I think it. You have to be careful when people. Anyway, you know, you can hierarchy people if you don't say we all come from the same. But anyway, they talked about how in their societies the women were exalted, and when the white man came in, he only did business with the man, so he broke up the relationship. You know, so that's what they did to a lot of people. I think that's what we learned that shit. You saying basically like the white man's relationship with their women, we take their the overall viewpoints and views of how they how they deal with their women and we that's pretty much implemented through our society, how we conduct business, how we deal with them as an overall whole. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. That's called that's called oppression and assimilation. Yeah. We get it, we get it, we get it, dog, and it's hard, man. It's hard not to feel that way sometimes. So in Roots, yeah. you remember no, Roots and Roots, remember bro. Roots? Um, <laughs> no, you remember Kutu? So, dog, dog, but we all, I don't know how far we get sometimes. Everybody have different. <laughs> <laughs> <That's my point. laughs> yeah. 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 So, like, like yeah. let's, I'm going to stick with the early part. So, like. Remember, Kunta had a daughter named right, Kizzy, right. right? Kizzy was on the plantation, and and um, the skate, the stagecoach driver was coming over, bringing his master over, and he would go sneak off and see yeah. Kizzy. You remember that? I can't remember his name. Okay, but anyway, when he walk in Kizzy's little uh, house, or whatever. This nigga sit on the couch and put his feet up and shit and put his hands behind his head and and wait for him her to serve him. Nigga, you just came in on driving somebody goddamn horse. What make you think that she deserves to fucking move you like that? Why why you not goddamn doing the same shit for her? Why y'all not sitting down together? Well, why do we have to well, see that shit? Because he was imitating the master. He was imitating the master. Right. The master was the father. And you imitate the father. So even slaves, the woman can be out there picking just as much cotton as the man right on side. As soon as they get in their quarters, he expect that, you know, to kick his feet up and relax and while she go in there and fix him something to eat. I, I, I think that's a false narrative. I think I, I, I get what we're saying. We're agreeing that that's what we do. I gotta believe that it won't like that in every situation, dog. It was women that won't go on for that shit. Yeah, it's a lot of women that ain't going for that shit, dog. You know what I'm saying? I think I think we get I think I think that's how we get reinforced the bullshit. It get reinforced through our, you know, films and shit. So it ain't, you know, we ain't have to see the white man do it. We saw it in our movies. Who made the movies? White people. All right then. So they 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 uh they perpetuate a narrative and a way of absolutely thinking. absolutely but let's not get too far off but i just uh, say that daughter so don't so so it is about the women dog don't that's all i'm saying dog rue <laughs> <laughs> all right uh chapter 10 man the dilemma of wealth with control they talk about bob johnson right so uh bob they talked about uh, the book kind of touched on bob johnson earlier in the book and Bob Johnson, for the, uh, the listeners uh, who don't know Bob Johnson, he started BET. And he started BET as a little uh, television program sell selling uh, TV ads. And he found his niche with BET by playing videos. Then as time went on, the videos became more ratchet. And it, it started to show the, the dark side of our culture. And then the more they started disrespecting women and looking women as objects, the more people started tuning in and the more Bob Johnson started making their, uh, making his money. A lot of people felt like Bob Johnson hurt the race and set us back more than anything. Right. And Bob Johnson was a capitalist. Bob Johnson was like, look, man, I'm just here to make some money and build this company up. So what he ended up doing, he eventually got BET up and he sold BET for a lot of money to Viacom. So here Bob Johnson has all this money and now he wants to buy an NBA team, right? So the black community spoke out against him and he pretty much said, hey man, y'all don't understand uh, capitalism and how this shit works, right? So, but when he went up to buy the, the team, he leveraged the black community and he played the race card. And he was like, hey, y'all got this NBA. 
with all these black players and no black owners. So they was like, all right, you got a point. We'll let you buy the team. <laughs> all right, dog. So I'm going to ask you some questions, dog. If Bob Johnson had not so well, first of all, does Bob Johnson have the right to want to buy NBA team? Yes. Okay. If Bob Johnson does not sell BET, does he have the money to buy NBA team? What do you think? No. Okay. Was there a black person who could have bought BET from Bob Johnson so that he can buy NBA team? Yes. Do you think a black person could have given him the money to buy BET so that he can purchase a black a NBA team? That I don't know. But there there were black people that was offering him money for BET, but he chose the highest bidder, which was Viacom. Again, do you think the money they were offering him was enough to purchase an NBA team? If I had to guess, I would probably say no. Okay. So now what is Bob Johnson to do? Do you think those black people who were offering money to buy the NBA team were going to pull their money together so he could have a bid higher than Viacom so that he can buy the NBA team that he has the right to dream for? That's a possibility. They possibly they possibly could have. Do you think they did? I mean, he didn't give them a chance. Do you think they asked about it? Do you think they wanted to? Yeah, in the book they talked about it. So you think he missed a billion-dollar opportunity from black people to sell it to Viacom? No. I don't right, think then. <laughs> Case closed. Okay, well, moving on from Bob Johnson, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking about sometime, Walt. What is it? Tell me I'm wrong. I don't know. Tell me. What we be talking about sometime? I don't know, man. Like, I'm, I'm kind of on the, I ain't gonna say I'm on the fence with it, but like, with shit, with, with Bob Johnson, he did have a right. Well, I, I look at, as Bob Johnson as capitalist, right? So, hell, any other person, what people do when they in the business world, they, they buy, they, they build a business from the ground up, which he built from BET. You get it to a point where it's worth a whole lot of money. And then you, and then you sell the business, you know? Right. And once he sold the business, he has a right to do whatever he wants to do to to with, with the money that he gained from selling the company. So I mean, I can't fault him for wanting to. Uh, I can't fault him for wanting to uh, want to buy Charlotte Bobcats. But at the same time, as Lenny was saying, when it comes down to as as his when he owned BT, he had control over what was being displayed on television at that time. He was able to control the narrative. Because he was able to control the narrative and so many people and BET was like the only well, one of the only few black entertainment networks of television that we we went to and rushed to watch every day, 106 and Park, whatever those TV shows may have been back in the day. That because BET he had uncut and BET uncut at nighttime at two in the morning, but because he had the opportunity to control the narrative which we all complained about so many times, day in and day out, he ain't do a good job of controlling the narrative. He should have more so. Do you remember so when he, that happened? He built up the company at what cost? Do you remember when and that right, happened? Right, at what cost? Do you remember what, like, I remember when um, um the, another tip, the, the news the tip video came out. The news went away. Remember oh, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The news? yeah, talking about uh, uh, Jackie. Um, Jackie and, and Tabby Smiley? Jackie no, it was the last game dude. Was it Jackie Neal? Right Jackie? No, man. No, was that was Jackie a good show. Reed, that's her name. Jackie Reed, right? Yeah. Jackie Reed. Yeah, so, so he did. He got rid of uh, he got rid of the news, and then it just became straight smut. So you know, to answer your question, Harvey, sometimes you mean it's kind of like, are you a person where the ends justify the means, or? do you have some type of moral compass where you say like all money is not good money or uh, I can, I can make this money. It might be a little harder, but at the end, you know, I think I did the right thing and I kept my moral compass. I mean, I think it's always going to be easier to say what the next person did, man. I think when you get in those type situations, you look at it as you're the person that's 
crossing those boundaries because you still know who you are. You making you made the sacrifice of being pissed off the person everybody pissing off. I did everything right. I got to this point. I can't hold it no more. This is inevitable. I'm I'm not the only station that's getting ratchet. Everything is getting ratchet. This, I'm not, I don't control the damn media. I'm this fraction of the media. Don't say that I do this shit. I can't control this. I'm out of here. I'm trying to get into this market. How can I get there? It's the only way I can get there. I know who I am. I know I'm about to piss all these niggas off. I ain't got time for this right now. Yeah, but he ain't control the media, but he can control what's being shown on his television station because he owns the station. I think he was competing for the same stuff that everybody else was, though. I don't think we wanted to see nothing positive. We act like we did, but we don't watch positive stuff. So you're saying that that, that was the time when people were moving from conscious hip-hop to ratchet hip-hop. Absolutely. It reflected the times, and we wanted to see those videos. I did like those. <laughs> I did like BET Uncut. Uh, uh, let me smell that thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey. I know I did. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are we talking well, that, about? That, that group from um from Alaska. Alaska. Yeah, man, they had this group from Alaska talking about. Let I me know. smell it. <laughs> you know? then, then and then it was a then it became the battle of the the ratchetest videos. Yeah, uh, I think the one that took the cake, man, was that Nelly Tip Drill video. Well, that Ludacris That's had that, uh, uh pee popping on the handstand. Damn. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So is that BT fault? That's BT fault. Nah, ain't BT fault. It wasn't look, think about it, dog. It wasn't no YouTube back in the day, right? It wasn't no, it wasn't Google back in the day, right? It was more so just whatever we saw on TV. If you didn't record it on TV, you saw it at two in the morning till four in the morning. Whenever BT uncut came on. And a lot of cat, a lot of times, cats just stay up in the morning because I was in high school. Y'all look older than me, but I was in high school at the time, and we would stay up two in the morning to watch fucking videos and talk about them at school the next day. Mm-hmm. Damn, bro, did you see uh, Nelly swipe that damn black card between that chick's uh, ass cheeks? You know what I mean? That shit was amazing to see, crazy. But should have should we have been exposed to that at that age of ten or age of fifteen years old? I don't know. But did Bob Johnson provide a platform for it to be exposed on? You see what I'm saying? Man, I think I think I think it's always been an after like it's always been an after hours scene. And you your ass is supposed to be in bed. So don't blame Bob Johnson for that. It was after hours. It won't on the daytime. But it was just station you know what I'm saying? <laughs> there wasn't no DVR back then. And you probably didn't have no VCR. So your ass was up when you weren't supposed to be. So don't blame Bob Johnson for that, dog. Okay. No, you can still blame Bob Johnson because it was his station. Dog. Nah, dog. That's you know what, man? Nah, it's right. awesome. We're talking about blame. Okay. Right. What are we blaming, right. what, what are we blaming him for? All <laughs> right. right. Let's, let's talk about the whole. Let's talk about the whole. Which All is, right. Which is what? Hey, this question is for you, Harvey. Okay. Since you, it, it, you got your Bob Johnson cable. <laughs> He came for Bob now. Oh, yeah, he came for Bob. <laughs> Bob Caper. He's trying, he trying to be pragmatic about it, but you don't see how pragmatic you are. <laughs> Did Bob Johnson help advance the culture? Yes. And the race in a good way or a bad way? Uh I would I would perhaps say both. Let's talk about the bad way. I think he. No, no, I think no. Let, he, let's start. Let's no, because you already talked about the good way. No, know. no, no. No, I, start I, with the good then. Well, I think I think for those of us who remember the diversity of the shows in the era where we had things like Caribbean rhythms, you know, that was a dope show. Um, you had the news. I remember. The, I remember Caribbean rhythms. I remember the news. I remember the um, the video joints with uh, your boy Donnie. I remember BT Gospel. And I remember um, mm-hmm. Cousin Jeff, you know what I'm saying? Like, I remember that, and that was good. But I also remember being T-Cut Uncut because I remember the music changing. And so I think that, um, you know, I remember that, and I think I think it was beautiful. I also remember that that's how television moved, too. There used to be a dude named Benny Hinn, right? He used to do little dirty jokes. He was silent films and do little dirty jokes. He was a British guy, and it wasn't X-rated, you know. 
had Cinemax after dark. You know, they got little titties out every now and then, a little bushy. You never see no lips, but a little bushy down bottom. You know what I mean? So I think that, you know, Bill, Bob Johnson moved his company along with the time. You know, did he set us back? I think that, you know, if we find out that he made it difficult for people who did have positive images and media to get on the show and he refused them, you know, I don't know about that narrative, you know. But if if, if it's so that, you know, okay, we find out, okay, man, it was all these people out here who was giving him material that he was like, man, I can't play this. I can't play this. I can't play that. He was turning down black people stuff and all that kind of stuff. I think that would have been, I don't think that would have been cool. So I, I don't, I don't know about that. I think that the other part about, you know, I think, I think that's what the, if he set us back comes in, you know, if he did in fact deny uh, us to have balance that, that we talked about. Cause it seems like that's where we think we lost it is when we lost our balance. He didn't give us enough options, but it's only one station, only 24 hours. Ah, you know what? You make a great point. <laughs> yeah, it's one station and so many. Yeah, that kind of that kind of goes into the oppressor turning people against each other. Yeah. yeah I mean, he so basically he can't do it all. I mean, nah. he, had, yeah. he had he had he had to uh he had to go with the times to We couldn't uh, get another Bob Johnson. We couldn't get another one. Yeah, we we got one now. Byron, Byron Allen. No, nah, but think about it. Well, look, you know what? You making me think a little bit too though. Shit. But think about Bob Johnson was one of the first to do it. Right. So he was he was he was in the river of uncharted territories, you know. Right. So he had to pretty much like create the lane. So whoever the trailblazer is, you're always going to have people that's going to be like, damn, man, you should have did it this way or that right. way. No wow. one's in the actual wow. driver's seat. Well, wow. the first one through the door always is the first one to get shot. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> first, so, first one through the door is always the first to get shot. Think about it. Yeah, you that's true. I mean? That's uh, true. Speaking speaking of which, the first through the door. Uh, let's let's talk about Kirk Flood for a little bit because he's important. So uh, the theme is we're talking about chess pieces and 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 moves that people make. We we already talked about uh, how Michael Jordan made it uh, made it okay and acceptable in the minds globally that a black man can be a global uh, marketing megastar right we talked about how bob johnson uh had a network and by him kicking the door in and his network we were able to have the old network oprah had now oprah has her network right now we have uh byron allen with his network right he has so, several networks yeah with several networks right so all right, we already we already shot Bob Johnson. Say he hurt. <laughs> no, we got we got. I don't, I don't understand Bob. He got hurt. shot by going through the door first, but uh, but Harvey saved him and gave. Him, okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Harvey. Yeah, gave him out the mouth and some compressions. So he, he's still holding on. <laughs> Harvey, Harvey, Harvey jumped in front of the bullets. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's still he's still good. He's still good. But uh, it, it almost come. I mean, it, it become almost cliche that all professional athletes owe a debt and gratitude to Kirk Flood because Kirk Flood uh played baseball at a time where they had this thing called a reserve clause, and basically a reserve clause in in baseball was the owners had the right to hold you as long as they want to hold you and pay you what you, what they felt that you should be paid without any say so. So, uh, Kirk flood played baseball for 15 years for the St. Louis Cardinals. And, uh, he was a three time all-star seven time goat golden glove winner and a member of two world series championships. But it was Flood's life off the diamond that will always transcend the great feats he accomplished as a player. And his story is a young adult confronted by racism he had not known as a child because he grew up in Oakland. And on the West Coast, especially in the upper West Coast, they didn't deal with the type of racism that we dealt with. But after the 1969 season, Kirk was traded 
from the St. Louis Cardinals to the Philadelphia Phillies in a blockbuster seven-player deal in October 1969. But after 12 solid seasons in St. Louis, he declined to report to his new team. So Philadelphia, often hostile and sometimes racist fan base, was well known to flood. So was the Phillies' shoddy performance on the field. Two months later, after, after his trade and repeated attempts by the Philly to get him to sign a contract, Flood, in a letter to Commissioner Bowie Coon, demanded to be made a free agent. So Flood is the person that started free agency in baseball, and that kind of rolled over into the NBA. So he wrote a letter, and he said, after 12 years in the major league, I do not feel I'm a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespectively of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that results violate my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States and of several states. It is my desire to play baseball in 1970, and I'm capable of playing. I received a contract offer from Philadelphia Club, but I believe I have a right to consider offers from other clubs before making a decision. I therefore request that you make known to all major league clubs my feeling in this matter and advise them of my availability for the 1970 season. So basically he said, you know what? I know my worth and you just can't betray me to any team without my say. So, you know what? I'm going to take charge as a man and not chattel property to be bought and sold against my wishes and market myself to the highest bidder. So like I said, Michael Jordan showed that black people can be marketable. Kirk Flood started free agency. free agency. And now you have Bob Johnson open up the doors so we can view. Well, with Kirk Flood, man, I think with him, he was one of the first players to say, you know what? I want to take control of my own destiny. And I want to be able to, to have a say-so where I go to and not just be thrown away to a team in the middle of nowhere. And got to play for that team regardless of how I feel. I got to uproot my entire family. I've been here for, what, 12 or 15 years. So his entire Major League Baseball career, all his business ties, family ties, kids are in school, et cetera, et cetera, all that has to be changed within a matter of a, a stroke of a pen. Right. Like I said, they look at it as, hey, you the man, and hey, you can go. What happened was, they played the media against him, kind of like what they do today. That's they probably, say, hey, yeah. man, you making $90,000 a year to play a game. You ungrateful. How you just can't up and leave? If I, you know, how many people make $90,000 a year playing the game? And so what they did was they leveraged his salary and they put the people against him and made it seem like he was ungrateful. Think about this, though, Lenny. So, look, you live in Orlando, right? right. So think about if... Your current employers, they say, all right, Lenny, uh, we're moving you to Seattle, Washington tomorrow, Seattle, Washington, and you got to report in two weeks. Regardless of how you feel about it, you got to report in two weeks. <laughs> or don't have a job. Or don't have a job, right. Or don't have a job. Your job, you got a job, but it's in Seattle. Not saying it's fair and not saying it's right at all. It's still a it's still a foul situation, but a player should have the right to be able to say so where his family lives at, and he should be able to dictate where he where he's employed at. You know, right? In a system of, uh, and, and that kind of goes back to plantation owner slave kind of mentality. That kind of like rolls into uh, Larry Johnson was saying. I hate to, I, 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 hate to, I hate to say this, but I don't I don't think okay. Yes, that. That is exactly what it's saying, but I don't think that's was his intent. Because let's remember, black people won't end the game at first. So we're not talking about rules that was created to keep us in place. These was their rules from the beginning. And when they're talking about reserve, they're talking about keeping what they want. So we're not saying we own you, we own you. They're saying we're going to keep what we want. So that says that there wasn't no contracts back then. So maybe the brother realized he didn't have a contract and maybe he went in there talking contract. And so maybe he won't take in a stance, waving his finger, shaking his ass, saying, I'm going to be blah, blah, blah. You said he wrote a letter to his agent. See, these brothers was thinking 
I think we get discredited for our intellect is what I'm trying to say, Lenny. I think sometimes it's like we miss the fucking point. Sometimes it's the intellect. You got to pay attention to what's happening. So maybe he he realized he didn't have a contract. Or maybe you said that no, he, no, he had a contract. Not. That's where the reserve thing came from. So he did have a contract. So he understood right. something. And I think that's the part about it. So like when you understand those kind of things, you got to act on it. But I think when you was talking about to your original, though, Hold on, let I me think, correct you. It wasn't a letter to his agent. It was a letter to the commissioner. To the commissioner, my bad, yeah. Right, and he yeah. demanded to be made a free agent. That's what I'm saying. That's intellect. That's him understanding his rights. It ain't just, you know what I'm we're saying? Not we're not challenging the intellect. We're challenging the mindset and the way they operate. And, and we're talking about, like, the, you know, the book, $40 Million Slave. So you're operating as I'm the owner, you're the slave, you're on my plantation, my team. You don't have any say. So if I sell you, that's what I'm saying. That ain't, I I don't think that's the that's what I'm saying. I don't think that I think that's that's the propaganda of the book. I don't think that's what the system is doing per se. That is how it plays out. That is the emotional feeling. It's a hell of a it's a hell of a an analogy. I get that, but I'm just saying, man, I, I don't think that's how them brothers was thinking about it. I think those brothers, you know, they understood that it was business and he understood his worth. You know what I mean? I think that's the I think that's the takeaway for us that we're supposed to understand our worth. Or, or, or it could have been as simple as like, he was like, man, you know what? They trade me in the middle. He could have been at, look, all right. He could have been out at the fucking bar, right? In, in the middle of that in St. Louis and heard about he got fucking traded in there. Well, heard about he got traded that night over the news or something like that because that's how it usually is most of the time man you hear about you getting traded right right while you're, they're out and about there is no like the situation about your life is never being discussed about with you it's right. being discussed with other owner other people you know about your life so you got to go home and have a conversation with your family with your mother with your daughter with your um the kids Gotta say, hey, listen, daddy got traded. Your kid, your kid might say, Daddy, why you got traded? What's traded? Well, we gotta move to fucking Seattle, Washington. Why we gotta move there, Daddy? You gotta answer all these hard ass questions to your kids. And then from there you gotta or uproot. The family can stay there and daddy gonna leave and go play and I come back in the off season. Yeah, but how 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 People beneficial in the military do it? People in the military do it. Yeah, but who's says is right though? But that ain't the point. The point is, he wanna have <laughs> he wanna he wanna have agency over his own body. Absolutely. And he, wanna, and he wanna have agency over what what he can do, and he wants to he wants to navigate his ship. That's and right. With that reserve clause clause, it, it it says, hey, you don't have agency over you. You don't get to navigate your ship. I tell you what to do, and I tell you what your worth is. And he's saying, hold on. You don't get to tell me what my worth is because you right. might think I'm worth ninety thousand. But he might I think I'm worth I'm think I'm worth one hundred and fifty thousand. And you know what? And let me go out and see who was willing to pay one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for me. Right. And then they like, how dare you, uh, Negro or player? Because the 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 thing was, a lot of players supported him, but he felt like he was alone because they were afraid to show up in court. Uh, there was no active players that showed up in court with him, right? But he, but he had retired players coming in there and supporting him, like one Jackie Robinson. You know, they were going in there and they were supporting him. But behind the scenes, the players were help funding his lawsuit. Right. And he ended up um, winning. Well, actually, he didn't win. He lost. But it it, it did it, it was a game changer from henceforth because it, it started the competition, right? Right. But it also right. gave him a black eye. I can't remember. Did he get? Did he get? Did he play again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he played for a couple more years, like three more years. They said Saturday. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah, he played for a couple more years, but then he ended up uh, like moving to Italy and and started paying. I want to say for like five years and. Then he uh, moved to another another foreign country and opened a restaurant, and then from that point he ended up coming back to the U.S. and uh, 
he passed away over here in the U.S. Yeah, they say he had a drinking problem and lost a lot of money. Yeah. He I don't know like if it was somebody I know, man. When I look at the picture, you know, it looks like a lot of... <laughs> He looked like somebody I know. But uh, in closing, in the book, the book kind of wraps it up uh, with the mm-hmm. theme, the $40 million slave. Right. And um, and it was with Larry Johnson. And that's where the name of the book come from. Because during the game, somebody yelled at Larry Johnson and said, you're nothing but a $40 million slave. And right. Johnson, and Johnson kind of talks about that. Johnson saying, hey, you know that we can't, you guys pretty much try to own us and we can't do right. what we want to do. And we can't speak out and say, we want uh and say the things that we want to say, you know, you just want us dribbling and dunking and scoring points. It's kind of like we're on a plantation. So he got a lot of flack from those comments. And then, so Johnson and uh, went and doubled down on his comments and, you know, and Johnson talks about how, you know, he came from the hood and some of the things that he was exposed to was the same things that his neighbors was exposed to. What set him out that he was gifted at, uh, athletically and he grew tall so he could play basketball. So he was able to make it out of the hood off his body, right? But when he go back, you know, those are the people that he know. But he finds himself like in a spot where a lot of athletes find themselves in a spot. I'm more comfortable with the people that I grew up with. But mm-hmm. now... I make so much money and I have so can't much status. Right. I can't really hang out with you. Right? right. So I live in a, so my status put me around people that I'm nothing alike. I don't really trust y'all. I'm like these guys that I came from with, I came up with, but I can't go back to them, but right. I'm just like them in, in the presence of y'all. Now I feel lonely. You're in a great area. You're in a sucking place almost. No, not a sucking place. But a, a, a state of purgatory, of <laughs> a, a financial and cultural purgatory. You know what I mean? So I can imagine how lonely these athletes feel sometimes. Like, are you 19? You, you, you out of high school? You just got drafted to Utah. You know what I mean? You got $19 million in your pocket. When you go back to the hood, it's fun. It's all good until the haters start coming around. You know, you move somebody lady, you didn't even know that they was a lady. Now they got a grudge against you because they just right, you gotta, you gotta intimidated by you. you so when you come back, this, you this, know, this. they trying to shoot at you or trying to rob you. You know. That's horrible. Trying to hey, then got- but then you go by the other people, you don't trust them. The people right. that's on your uh that's in your financial uh bracket. You don't you don't have nothing in common with them. You don't eat bruschetta, you don't know what that is. I mean it doesn't always even take getting. It don't even take getting the Larry Johnson level. I'm gonna ask both of y'all. Walt, starting with you. Tell me your thoughts on the book. Your overall thoughts on the book. Nah. Is it worth reading? Give it a scale of one to ten. That's a good question, but I, I get it. I get a book. Me being a, a former uh, athlete myself, and being on the conveyor belt, uh, which was one of the chapters as well too. Uh, I get a book of uh, I get a book of nine point five, right? No, I'll say nine. I'll say I'll say nine. I'll say nine. I'll say nine because of the fact that the author he was not an actual person that was on the conveyor belt. He was not an actual like athlete, right? But does does not discredit him from being uh, a good person to write the book. But his lenses was more so from a person that was like on the outside not looking in not from the inside looking out you know okay right but as far as the information and the research and the time and dedication that you can tell this guy put into this actual book you got to give him a, 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 a you got to give him a nine i would say man because of the some of the stories that he brought up were so and i'm a i'm a sports historian some of the stories that he brought up about tom muller knew about the different cyclists, about uh, like the, the, some of the uh, prize fighters back in the day, like Jack Johnson, some of the small things that that was lost in time and history for whatever reason um, that he brought up. Man, I think dude did a great job. Uh, if I'm ever able to meet this guy, man, I definitely want to shake his hand and and, uh, and thank him for like putting this putting this book together. 
But I also would say that I would suggest any high school athletes or college athletes to read this book to just get a better keen understanding of how the actual system works and the system in which uh, they are part of. Because sometimes like being a college athlete, you don't understand to the magnitude of where you fit at in the grand scheme of things. You're looking at things from like a, a surface level and not from like a bird's eye view and understanding uh, your leverage and what you do have. You know, one thing that we did not talk about tonight was um, the Michael Jordan, uh, the center that they wanted to create on the campus of North Carolina. And I and looking back at it, like I think Jordan had a lot of leverage that he could have he could have um, could have used to be able to have that center placed on the campus of North Carolina. But he didn't, you know. Hey, speak on that. But uh, overall, man, I don't remember. But overall, pause on that right quick. Harvey, do you, you know you know what he's talking about? Okay. Yeah, I know what he's talking about. Speak on speak on that center a little bit, Walt. All right. So what happened is it was like um, at the University of North Carolina, Jordan. It was it was post post Jordan era as far as being on campus, but it was a lot of black football players and uh, the student body as a whole. They wanted to have like a center. Um, African American Culture Center, like the Black uh, Student Union, like the Black Student Unit, be on campus, but they wanted to have a separate location than what they had. What they had at the time was like an area um, that was like a in the middle of like let's say like a regular student center that was like you can see in all four sides. It was like a glass area you can see in all four sides, and they felt like they was being watched and disrespected by them being there. Right, so they was protesting to the the president of the school and they got involved Michael Jordan mom they got involved uh a Spike Lee's uh a Spike Lee got involved and even reached out to Michael Jordan to see what he can do um with his level of influence on the University of North Carolina but Jordan refused to get involved uh his take was like it should not just be a it should not just be an African-American exclusive student center. It should be a, a student center for all races and all students on the actual campus. Right. And that's an example of Chapter 7, the conveyor belt, and how it blinds you and conditions you to not see that there is a, a, a world out there that's racist. But when you always in the gym and everybody that you come across, black, white, or anybody... You're shielded from that. So you don't even see it. Hey, Harvey. Yes, sir. What you think about the book and how would you rate it? I think um if if young I think of black men, right? Read this book and it does what Walt talks about. It teaches him about the system. It teaches him about exploitation. Um, I think the book um is good. I got a lot of issues with the the positioning of some of the narratives. You know, I don't think I don't think it I don't think they tell, I think it feed I think some of the narratives um are, are are critical about stuff that don't have to be. But I think if it, you know, gives us an opportunity to look peek behind the curtain, if you will, and see the game that's being played, if this is the the stage that we can learn it, I think that's good. Because, you know, at the end of the day, sports is one of the few opportunities we have to be multimillionaires. Like many of us don't make millions of dollars working on our jobs. So, you know, when you look at it, you know, sports provides one of the better opportunities. Even those that go into sports management, and um, you know, they, you know, benefit from the game. So, it's you know, I think it's, I think it's good that we get an opportunity to see how people's um have been let down so to speak how people didn't get the opportunities that they wanted to get you know i remember michael jordan had a commercial one time where he said i'm sorry i'm sorry for making it look so easy you know so i think by reading this you kind of learn to manage expectations like okay damn if it happened to them okay what does it mean for me while i'm working at best buy or jimmy john's or you know on campus or you know what does this mean for me and how's this, you know, what makes me different, right? So, yeah, man, I think I think, I think, think some of the narrative was kind of, you know. 
I wouldn't yeah. say you don't that. agree. You don't agree with the narrative. I don't you agree think with. It, I think you the think it's a slap made, in the face. I think the, uh, I think the, 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 to make the slave comparison in the no, 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 no. I don't think that's a slap in the face. Like it's yeah, it's obvious. I mean, it is a it is a plantation system. I'm not negating that, and I and I get the idea of forty million dollars slave. I think that's a great illustration. But I think some of the ideas that what people are supposed to do to show their agency and how people are supposed to spend their money and what people's, you know, allegiance to black people and how quotes get misinterpreted. I mean, come on, man. But I think that's I think that's sloppy. Oh. I think that's sloppy. Oh, OK, so you're saying that it is too much opinion in some part. Absolutely. And the author conveys his opinion. Absolutely. Versus the facts and letting the reader kind of. Uh, right. Come up to their own, draw their own conclusion. Absolutely. He, he was he was Michael Moore in it. He absolutely. <laughs> hey, <laughs> my thoughts on the book, uh, Walton Harvey. Yes, sir. Let's hear. All it. right. First of all, the writing, the writing flowed well. Anybody can pick up the book and just go. It's the writing. It flows like a conversation. In some parts, it was very vivid, and you can kind of like see, uh, see what he's talking about, and feel like you're there. Like when he was describing the Morgan State and Grambling game, and he was talking about, uh, he was giving like the details on the game and the quarterback and how they switched it out. So I really the writing, I give uh, out of one out of ten, I give like a solid eight, mm. seven and a half, eight, mm. right. So I think he did a really good job with the book. Uh, I think the chapters were in good chronological order where you can understand his mindset. And I think he did a good job in making his argument. So uh, out of one through 10, I give this book an eight. This book is a really good book. Keep reading. Keep reading. Yeah. Reading is fundamental. Hope you enjoyed. Please click the subscribe button to whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And remember to stay tuned in, stay learning, and keep reading.